Well, <coughs> a few weeks ago, I was um, flicking through some TV channels, looking for some sports to watch, essentially, uh, when I was hit with a sudden wave of nostalgia. I can't even remember the name of the, the, the channel that I flicked to, but all of a sudden, I, I just saw those four familiar faces, the four familiar faces of the A-team. And uh, I just found myself thrown all the way back to my childhood. They were like my heroes. And uh, uh, if you've not seen, I, there was a kind of a rough remake of, uh, of the A-Team a while ago, but it wasn't very good. This was the original, and it's worth watching just for its pure cheese. Now, if you don't know who the A-Team were, basically they were this four-man team of righteous renegades who set out to put wrongs to right. And what a team it was. I mean, you had B.A. Baracus was the muscles. Murdoch was the crazy pilot who can land and take off pretty much anywhere. Uh, Face was the smooth talker who somehow managed to get everything that you might possibly need to build a tank. Uh, it was generally how it went each episode. And then Hannibal, the brains of the outfit, who pulled everything together. And every episode generally followed the same pattern. Person A would be introduced to the watcher, you know, he's bad, he or she's badly treated by some bad guys and there's no possibility of escape. Then person A somehow meets the A team who decide that it's just the right thing to help out person A and deal with their problem. Then what happens is the A team essentially hatch an elaborate plan to deal with person A's problem, creating armored vehicles out of Skoda Fabias and munitions out of toilet roll cardboard and all such wonderful things that Blue Peter could never live up to. And then the A-team would carry out this elaborate mission in every single episode and succeed without fail. And every episode ended, I still remember it, with Hannibal saying through a cigar smile. Can you remember what he said? Anyone? I love it when, I love it when a plan comes together. There was no American accent there. I'm a bit disappointed about that. Now, why do I start with that? I'll tell you why, because as I was watching this, uh, this 18 episode, it made me think of the book of Genesis, right? I know, it's strange, but here's why. People in Genesis, we see lots of people face an absolutely impossible situation. It's called sin and suffering, and death. It tells us that God then has this elaborate plan to help, and I'm not embarrassed in the slightest to use that word. It is an elaborate and grand plan. And then we see that across the storyline of the Bible, against all odds, God does it. He achieves what he sets out to do. That in the end, as we come and look at passages like these in Genesis 40 and 41, we can look at it and say, we love it when we see his plan come together. That's why it reminded me of Genesis. Now, remember when we get to this point here in Genesis chapter 40, there are two people or groups of people that are seemingly in impossible situations. The first is humanity, the second is Israel. Okay, in Genesis chapter 3, way back at the beginning, the people God made sinned and that brought death, sin, and separation from God into human experience. But in Genesis 3.15, God reveals an elaborate plan in the shape of a very, very special promise. The promise, 
would be for a serpent crusher, an enemy crusher, a, a devil crusher, essentially, who will reverse the curse of the fall and undo the effects of sin and restore what Eden was like, walking with God without sin and suffering. The second group in Genesis that we meet who are in an impossible situation is Israel or God's people. Genesis contains some of the biggest problems uh, promises there made to individuals, like in uh, Genesis 12, 1 to 3, when we saw that God chose Abraham out of all the people of the world to be the one from whom will come descendants, from whom will come nations and blessing, especially in the form of salvation. And that plan was then handed down, as we've seen so far, to Isaac and to Jacob. And now in some way, while we wait for the proper handing of the blessing in Genesis 49, it's somehow been handed down to Joseph through two dreams that he had in chapter 37. Promise that would see Joseph rise to a position of authority and governance and rule to the extent that his entire family, even his dad as the head of the household, would bow down to him. That's an elaborate plan. And the problem is, as we come to chapter 40, the whole thing looks absolutely dead in the water, doesn't it? Joseph is so far from ruling here that it's absolutely unbelievable. And two things would make you think that. One, Joseph has suffered the horrendous experience of being trafficked into slavery by his hateful brothers. They couldn't stand him or his stories or his dreams. And indeed, his dream is now in tatters. And secondly, he not only ends up in Egypt, he ends up in prison in Egypt because of Potiphar's wife. Even the tatters of his dreams are in tatters. So how devastating was that to Joseph? It must have been super devastating for him. Nothing was going right for him. Every time there seemed to be this little glimmer of hope, he'd, he'd experience some kind of a, a, other sucker punch by something else. I always picture Joseph's life from Genesis 37 up to this point like some stock market graph in recession. You know, there are, there are occasional little peaks here and there, but essentially it is a downward trend. It's not going well for him. The thing is, though, despite his experience, God was working out his elaborate plan. Joseph, would you believe it, was exactly where God wanted him to be in order to make him the savior of his own people and indeed the savior of the world. It's bizarre, really, but I want to show you that God has a plan and he loves to show us how it all fits together. And I want to walk this through in two points. The first point is much bigger than the second point, by the way. And, and the two points are this. One, God's got a plan. Two, live like it's true. God's got a plan, live like it's true. So number one, God's got a plan. The closing verses of chapter 39 offer this glimmer of light in a dark situation for Joseph. He's in prison, of course, but two people are with him. Uh, the king's prisoners and, of course, the Lord. Okay, so here's where we see what happens. God essentially choreographs in a quick period of time Joseph's unlikely rise to power, you know, from prison to pinnacle. How? Well, here's how. God introduces Joseph to the butler of the most powerful man in the world. Look with me at chapter 40. We're going to absolutely fly through this, so keep your Bible open in front of you. 
In verses 1 to 4, we basically have the scene is set for this episode. Joseph's in charge of two guys in the prison, a cupbearer and a baker. One was in charge of Pharaoh's foods. One was in charge of Pharaoh's drink. Both had, a, had offended Pharaoh in some way. That's why they're here in prison. Verses 5 to 8 then tell us that they both had dreams and both were worried. Here's why. Egyptians believed that sleep somehow put them in contact with another world. So interpreting dreams was really important to them. They have dream books back then and dream uh, divination, dream interpreters back then. But they are in prison and have no access to those things. So Joseph is clearly, as we've seen from chapter 37 already, clearly enabled to interpret dreams. That sounds really weird, right? I mean, in days before they had a Bible, though, God had spoken to people on occasion in their dreams to either get their attention or get them to do a certain thing or get them ready for a certain thing. Now, I do want to say that's not the way he ordinarily does it now. God has spoken with incompatible clarity through the Bible, through his son. So don't be coming to me afterwards and saying, I really feel the Lord is calling us to start a dream ministry. Uh, I'll not be held responsible for walking away. Uh, Joseph, suitably, though, I'd argue, filled with the Spirit, then does a couple of things. He says, one, I... The meaning of everything is God's business. God is the interpreter of everything. Tell me your dreams, okay? And that's what he says. Tell me what they are. And then verses 9 to 22 tell us what those dreams are. Now, the content of these dreams isn't so important as their fulfillment. What we're led to see is that Joseph's interpretations come absolutely true. They are fulfilled. The baker is impaled and the cupbearer is restored to Pharaoh's service, perfectly positioned by God to put in that good word for Joseph so that Joseph might actually rise to that prominence. And as you're reading through chapter 40, you're like, oh, this is the bit where chapter 37's promise starts to get fulfilled. But no, it ends with this glimmer of hope fading because the cupbearer forgot who Joseph, forgot all about Joseph. It's disappointment after disappointment after disappointment after disappointment for him. Feels a bit like life, doesn't it? But then we see God bringing Joseph into the presence of the most powerful man in the world two years after that in one single day. Look with me at chapter 41 as we fly through this. In verses 1 to 8, God unsettles Pharaoh, king of Egypt, with some dreams. He's actually having a nightmare too, actually. One about gaunt, carnivorous cows um, and one about kind of burnt, scorched, zombie grain of some kind. And uh, Pharaoh is absolutely freaked out, as you would be if you saw uh, cows eating cows. So he wheels in all the experts of the day and all the experts of the day are absolutely stumped. So verses 9 to 13, we then see that this is what prompts the memory of the cupbearer, it's like, oh, wait a minute, I remember. He can't even remember his name. Oh, where was that? Oh, that young Hebrew in prison. Remember him? He, he can interpret dreams. Let's bring him out. And it's really clear. 
Essentially, God has been working out this wild and elaborate plan with this cupbearer to get him into prison with Joseph, to get him out of prison through the interpretation of his dreams so that he might be positioned in place two years later, cup in hand, at the point when Pharaoh has just had a couple of dreams, turns around and says, there's nobody here who's able to interpret my dreams. And the guy just goes, ah, Hebrew. And Joseph is brought quickly from the prison quickly made fit for Pharaoh's presence. And here God essentially brings Joseph into the presence of the most powerful man in the world in order to put him into position as the second most powerful man in the world. Look with me at verses 14 to 32. Joseph tells Pharaoh exactly what he needed to know. You know, Pharaoh just wanted to know the meaning of his dreams, but Joseph actually, at great risk to his own life, tells him again just what he said to the cupbearer and the baker in the prison, God is the one who gives meaning to everything. I can't do it. I can't interpret your dreams. God is the one who gives interpretation to dreams. So Pharaoh said, oh, I hear you're a dab hand at dreams. Can you interpret? No, God can which is amazing to say that to a guy who essentially thinks he's a God. For Joseph to say, there's a God in heaven that you're dependent on for everything, meaning included, is a big deal. That's the first thing he says when faced with this, these dreams to interpret. He says, one, God will interpret your dreams. He'll give meaning to your existence and what's going on in your life. The second thing Joseph says in response to what the dreams mean, basically, we're all going to die. That's basically what it means. There's a famine coming, okay? And the fact that the famine lasts for seven years means that all the grain that's been stored up before would ordinarily be used up. There'd be no grain to replant in order to have new crops by year seven. It was an absolute agricultural disaster. So Joseph's interpretation is as simple as it is stark. Seven years of plenty, seven years of famine. Verse 32, there's no avoiding it. The matter has been firmly decided by God, and God will do it soon. What a bold claim. The God that you do not believe in is going to bring seven years of plenty, then seven years of famine, and it's coming. Just you wait and see. What a claim to make. So Joseph testifies to the supreme knowledge of God and also the supreme power of God's. God's going to do this. This is his plan. No one can stop him is what he's saying. And the threat level in Egypt is raised to critical. Verses 33 to 36 shows that Joseph tells Pharaoh exactly what he then needed to do in response. Joseph amazingly has this plan in mind. You know, bear in mind the news of the famine is actually just instantly news to him. But look at him. He already knows what's needed. You need a leader who's wise and discerning, me, and a wink, wink, you know, and uh, a plan actually to transform the economy and the infrastructure of agricultural storage and distribution so that people don't go hungry, so that people don't have to travel in from miles away because Egypt's a massive country all the way here to Cairo or wherever they were in order to buy grain. No, they'll die on the way, essentially. And then verses 37 to 46, we see Pharaoh appointing Joseph to the position of the second most powerful man in the world, giving him all the clout that he could possibly need. 
He gives them a ring, which is effectively Pharaoh's own signature. He gives them a fancy robe, a fancy car, a PR team tweeting about how great Joseph is all the way. Make way, make way. He gives them a wife of Egyptian aristocracy, someone who's kind of married into the priesthood. So he's like properly wise and political, but also kind of holy by his marriage. It's all pretty weird in Egyptian terms. And then he gives them, amazingly, this prisoner, the freedom of Egypt. The freedom to travel throughout. Pharaoh makes Joseph so powerful in Egypt that he says in verse 45, I'm Pharaoh, but without your word, no one will lift a hand or foot in all of Egypt. Now that is power. Foot, lift, hand down. Can you imagine having that power and people... It's nuts power. It's crazy power. And then God holds up Joseph at the end of chapter 41 for us after elevating him to the position of the second most powerful man in all the world from prison to pinnacle in one day. He then holds him out to us all at the end of this chapter as the savior of the world. Nonetheless, Look with me, verse 47 to 49, seven years of plenty came, just as the Lord said they would. They saved so much grain in those years of abundance because of Joseph's great plan, they stopped counting. Ah, we give up, we've got loads. And then verses 53 to 57, the seven years of famine came, just as the Lord said they would, and they saved so many people. God elevates Joseph to an unbelievable level of providence. If you see in verse 55, when all the people cried to Pharaoh for food, Pharaoh told the Egyptians, go to Joseph. Go to Joseph. Verse 57, it wasn't just the Egyptians. All the world came to Egypt to buy grain. Note the, what says here. Not from Pharaoh. All the world came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph. What's up with all that? Isn't that an absolutely remarkable rise to power in such a short period of time? What is the point of all this? Why show us all of this? It's simple, really. Based on what we know about the promises made to Joseph through his dreams in chapter 37, we see here that God is keeping his promises. God will do what God says he will do. And I could, I could easily quote an hour's worth of Bible passages that make that super clear to us. I don't even feel the need to cross-reference from this passage. It's so crystal clear. The big question is, do you believe that God is in control to the extent that even as he works out this elaborate plan, he's able to do it? That as he fulfills his plan to all of us in relation to the whole of creation, do we believe that he is powerful enough to do what he promises he will do? Ultimately, what's brought into question is our faith in God's sovereignty, his control over all things, and his providence, his ability to make all things work. 
in accordance with his plan. Now, I guess you might ask, well, what are the promises that apply to us? I mean, he's not promising us to be rulers of any region anytime soon. No, he's not doing that. You're not Joseph. So this isn't something that's directly applicable to you in that respect. But there are plenty of promises that he has made that are definitely applicable to us. He has promised forgiveness for those who confess sin. Life for those who believe that Jesus died and rose again. Help in the fight against sin. Power to stand up under temptation. Progress in our pursuit of the likeness of Christ. Words as we proclaim the gospel. Testimony through the lives that we live. Spirit-given impressions on those who don't believe in Jesus when they hear our words and even see our lives. Endurance in the sufferings that we experience. Perseverance in the trials that make us just want to chuck it in. Heaven for those who hold firm to the end. And a new heaven and a new earth where we will see his face. Great and precious promises is what Peter calls them in 2 Peter. But what makes us doubt those things? Don't you experience doubt in relation? Can God do what he says he will do? Even if we wouldn't come out and say, yeah, I doubt it, would we? Maybe we do, but maybe we do it functionally by the way that we live our lives. What is it that makes us doubt that God is able to keep his promises and enable us to do these things? Well, I tell you what it cannot be. It cannot be any lack of evidence that God is sovereign and in control because the evidence is incontrovertible. It is there before us. It must there be, therefore be the reality that our circumstances often cause us to doubt. And the Bible's very clear about this. It doesn't hide it from us at all. Struggles are hard to bear. Hardships are definitively hard. <laughs> and it's not uncommon to hear people say, or maybe you've heard yourself say, you know, I've asked God to take this hardship away for years, but it's still my experience today. Or I've asked God for this and that, for reconciliation and a relationship that's broken, or a new relationship to fill that gap painfully felt, but nothing. And maybe sometimes the length of time that we struggle with a particular trial can also make us question whether or not God is able to do all that he says he will do. But we must realize that God's providence works itself out in a time frame known only to God, not to us. He didn't say to Joseph in chapter 37, here's what's going to happen. Your brothers, your parents, the whole world, everybody's going to bow down to you and says, but it's going to take 13 years, all right? Okay, that would have been useful to Joseph, I'm sure. Though, as we'll see shortly, it wasn't actually necessary. But for someone like me, maybe for someone like you, Having a time frame on something might be actually quite useful, but we're not given that. But what we are given is story after story after story in God's word that God's providence does not work quickly. It's a slow burner. Actually, we must realize God's providence is most often like a slow cooker. Over time, he's tenderizing us the way 
a slow cooker cooks meat. Like Joseph, 13 years until something, anything remotely like his dream happens. Now, that's not to say that things don't happen quickly. At times, God's providence is most often like a slow cooker, but sometimes there are these kind of microwave moments. That sounded so cheesy. It was unbelievable, but it's true. God's providence is most often like a slow cooker, but sometimes there are these microwave moments where you're just kind of blitzed, nuked from the inside out. And God brings about a sudden realization of some truth or a sudden growth in holiness in some way or a sudden resolution to a major problem that's been plaguing you for ages. Who knows what that is? Maybe it's that loved one that you've been praying for for years because they've been gone from the faith for a long time and 15 years later they give you a call and say, I've really been thinking about coming back to church. Would it be possible to meet up for a coffee? I don't know. Maybe it's a verse that just cuts you to the core concerning the loveliness of Jesus Christ and you realize how much you've been loving sin more than him and all his beauty. It can be a range of things. But Joseph has experienced these microwave moments, if you like, a microwave moment in this day of chapter 41. Prison pinnacle in a day. Now, God offers a billion reassurances in Genesis that he hasn't taken his hands off anyone's wheel. And friends, don't let our read or interpretation of our circumstances make us doubt the God who has said, as he says very plainly in Ephesians 1.11, that he works out everything in accordance with his will. Everything. That doesn't really leave anything out, does it? Now, he says that in relation to the subject of salvation in Ephesians 1, but it's true of everything, which makes me say, I love it when we see God's plan come together, just like it did in Joseph's life, just like it does in ours. It looks so unlikely, but Genesis 40 to 41 is here to show us God's got a plan and God's got this under control. Yes? God's got a plan. God's got it under control. That's point one, and I'm going to race through point two. So the main point of this is to help God's people back then, and us now realize that we ought to live like God's control and his authority is utterly true. And I want to show you just from these snapshots of Joseph's conduct in chapter 40 to 41, what kind of impact that believing on God actually should have on a Christian. It has an enormous God-glorifying, even world-awakening impact on us. And let me show you what I mean. There are three brief things in here. One, when things are hard, the sovereignty of God is what keeps believers trusting. We see this in chapter 40. We should be absolutely overwhelmed and astonished at the fact that in, at the start of chapter 40, Joseph is serving. If you'd been trafficked into slavery by your own brothers, wrongly accused as a molester by your boss's wife, and unjustly imprisoned without trial, what would you be doing in those moments? How would you be living? I guess I'd be tempted to be licking my wounds, kicking up a stink, utterly depressed, thinking only of myself, and possibly, quite possibly, cursing God. But not Joseph. 
In chapter 40, he's serving like as a chief lackey. He's not unaware of his own painful predicament, as you see in his description of verses 14 to 15. But he's still, as you see in verse 6, compassionate enough, not so self-absorbed with his own predicament and his impoverished situation that he's not even he's not unaware of the sad look on two prisoners' faces. It's a funny question to ask when you go into a prison cell with someone's food, isn't it? Why are you looking so sad? I think that would be quite obvious. But he obviously reckons they look sadder than normal. And that's how he finds out about the dreams. He's not so absorbed with a level of his own self-importance that he's unconcerned to serve others. Now, why would you do that? Unless you had a strong sense that God was faithful towards you and faithful to his own word that one day, but not yet, but one day, he's going to deliver you from that prison. I think he's got that confidence. Joseph keeps on serving because Joseph keeps on trusting the God who had said to him, I'm with you, and by his dreams, I've made you a promise. And when you believe that God has a plan and God's got this, it stops you from falling foul of sinful dejection, self-pity, and cynicism. Oh, it takes time for that to form. I'm sure of it. I get that. I've got lessons to learn myself. But let's together ask for patience and for insight to actually see it and live it out in our hardships because we've all got them. Second thing, when opportunities arise, the sovereignty of God exercises as such or is applied as such a practical teaching because it makes us bold. I mean, we should be amazed that Joseph is as bold as he is, especially before Pharaoh in chapter 41. Here he is appearing before a man who worships many gods and actually views himself as God and says, and basically just testifies to the supremacy of the Lord. It's an incredible moment when he claims and talks about God four times, even at the risk of his own life, he speaks out, knowing full well that his dream about the baker came true too, like he was impaled. Joseph knows this is at risk of his own life. But he says, God has revealed, God has shown, God's decided what he's gonna do, and God's gonna do it soon. He's staking everything on this, why? Because he is utterly confident in the sovereignty of God that what God says, he will do. I mean, if I was hauled before Pharaoh, who had already demonstrated this brutal streak with a baker, I would be more careful. I don't know about you. I might even be tempted to play up my own unique gifts of interpretation in order to make the idea of impaling me a bad one. But Joseph doesn't need to do that. Why? Because his confidence is in the sovereignty of God, and it's practically worked out in his boldness. The third thing we see, well, actually, before I get to that, this, I want to say, is how we live when we believe that God's got a plan and God's got this. If we believe that God is sovereign, it won't turn us into a mousy, passive person prone to inactivity. It will turn us into a quietly courageous lion happy to take risks from God, for God's like standing before the most powerful man in the world, pitching for the job of the second most powerful man in the world. It is bold as they come. It is risky. But why not? Why not, as in Joseph's case, when God has promised a rule or an authority of some kind, and he knows fine and well that at this moment, in front of this guy, he does not have it. And yet, he might. Why not think this might be the opportunity God will use to make this happen and step out 
in faith. The third way we see Joseph living this out is when things are good. When things are good, the sovereignty of God is what keeps us faithful. Chapter 40 shows us that Joseph was faithful on the downward slope, remember, of that recession graph. When things were hard, God's sovereignty kept him trusting. But what about on the upward slope? I think on the downward slope, the challenge is, are you going to keep on trusting God? But on the upward slope, the challenge is, are you going to keep on remembering God? Are you going to forget him? I think we're prone to do that when things are well. Chapter 41 shows us that when Joseph receives all the trimmings of wealth and all the blessings of family, he acknowledges them as gifts from God. When you see in verses 50 to 52, Joseph, who has been Egyptianized, he has two kids, and what does he call them? Hebrew names. He's not forgotten who his God is or the family that he comes from, Manasseh, because God has made me forget my trouble in my father's household. So he's remember, this is a, a balm to his suffering, not a rejection of Israel. Indeed, only half the dream has been fulfilled so far. We'll get to the next bit next week. And then he calls the other Ephraim, because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. Why can he call them that? Why doesn't he just ditch God and go with the, the multi-gods of Egypt? Because he knows who God is as the one true God. And he knows that God has given him a promise. And what God says, he will do. God's got a plan and he'll keep it. And he's going to love seeing God's plan come together. So God's sovereignty is a very practical doctrine for us. It makes us, it keeps us trusting in hard times, makes us bold at all times, keeps us faithful in good times. And that's how God would have us live, by his spirit, with his help, as we go through our lives. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, I wonder how this sounds to you. That someone might be in control of the life that you're living might be a comfort to you because the thought of life being lived so randomly is a terrifying thing for you. But it might not be to you. It might be a horrendous thought to you because of some of the things that you've experienced in life. Well, ultimately, this passage and this story shows us that whether we've had the downward slope or the upward slope, God is in control and God ministers to us and speaks to us in such a way that brings us to our senses and to the realization that even Pharaoh came to in some way that there's no one as wise and discerning as this God who knows what to do. And that's true. And actually, Joseph presents one final picture for us of the one that was to come. The very reason why he ultimately was preserved was so that he could be the savior of his brothers, one of whom was called Judah, through whose bloodline and descendancy would come a man called Jesus Christ the one who was sent by God to suffer the hardship of hardships, the suffering of sufferings, the weight of every human sin.
he would stand before a governor, a ruler of sorts himself one day and boldly assert God's sovereignty and control. You would have no power over me were it not given you from above, he would say to Pilate. And then we see him elevated to the highest possible position in existence, but only after he suffered death on a cross on our behalf. His name is Jesus, the true and better Joseph, who trusted the will and the plan of the Father so completely that even the night before he died, he prayed, Father, if it is possible, take this cup from me, this cup of suffering, yet not my will, but yours be done. But raised to reign he was three days later, and now he sits in heaven, the one who is, as Colossians says, before all things, in him all things hold together, the sovereign one, in other words, the worker of providence in this world. And like Joseph, he lives as the only one that all the world can go to in order to truly stay alive, in order to truly live. And if you don't know him, my encouragement is turn from your sin, trust in him, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will truly live. Let's bow our heads together and let's pray.